Welcome back to Geek Life, Pandamanga.com's very own podcast. This is episode 32, talking about movies. I'm JP, as always with me is my fearless co-host, The Brian. Hey there, um, uh, ah, f*** it, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now this being the movies podcast, we have our movie special guest, The Winchester. Hello. And then with us again, we have Pinku. I just woke up. <laughs> <laughs> To put that in reference, this is 9.30 right now. <laughs> PM. PM. PM, PM, yeah. <laughs> and then we have Nura also. Hello. So today we are going to get into movies a little bit later, but first, a little housekeeping. First up on housekeeping, we have a new segment coming to Pandamanga.com soon. I can't put a date on it yet. However, uh, I would say probably within a month or so we're going to get it started. We've got... A lot of work put into it already, and I'm very excited about it. It's going to be called the Merch Queen segment. Now, the admin is our resident Merch Queen. <laughs> I was going to say Joy. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured too. <laughs> yeah, so so she she is dialed into the merch. So she'll troll around on Etsy and ThinkGeek, finding all kinds of cool stuff, and, and that's just kind of her deal. And she already posts little things on her Facebook about, oh, I found this thing on Etsy, it's amazing, you know, and she'll post like this epic article and I was like let's just do that on the website you know and, or actually it was her idea and so she's got a couple of them put together already I think the first one is about uh, something Zelda I don't want to give it away but very exciting Zelda from the admin surprise, surprise. yeah <laughs> but anyway it's going to be a fun segment we're looking at it being uh, twice a month and uh, essentially I'm not sure what day it's going to be yet again this that sort of release stuff is still up in the air but the plan is for her to uh, put together twice a month some fun or, you know, every other week because sometimes, you know, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> getting caught up in the logistics, not so much important. But the exciting thing is that she's going to come out with every other week a really cool article talking about some kind of fun uh, niche gaming, you know, nerdy movie, comics, whatever it is, fun merchandise. And yeah, it's not necessarily going to be, you know, a bunch of different ones. It's going to be focusing on one in particular, as far as I understand. But, you know, it's her segment, so she's going to have the freedom to do whatever. And, and you know, little do you all know, she's actually a pretty decent writer, and so it's really exciting to work with her. And so, yeah, looking looking forward to that segment. Then uh, the last bit of housekeeping, our friend Melissa Pagluisa, a.k.a. Dark Sun Rose, has launched her new project. It is a web-based comic, at least so far. No doubt it will eventually get printed, but it's a webcomic, and it's called Above the Clouds, and you can check it out at atcloudscomic.com. And here's a little excerpt from it, uh, or like from the About page. Having your heart broken is not fun, so when a girl is offered a book, she finds herself happily getting lost in the story. Only this story isn't finished, and to her horror, the one who wrote it may not be able to complete it. Now, this is the culmination of a lot of work and prep and time that she's put in. Uh, she's been posting sketches and previews for it for some time now. And when we talked to her months ago, she was talking about being, you know, working behind the scenes on a comic. And, you know, when you, when you talk to somebody at Artist's Alley and they mostly have what could be considered fan art or prints or something like that, and you say, do you do comics? Almost all of them will say, well, I got something I'm working on, har, 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 <laughs> you know. That doesn't normally mean anything. But she was deadly serious. And so here she is, and it just came out last week. And at the time of this release, you should be able to find the first two pages on her site at cloudscomic.com. It is gorgeous, like all of her stuff. 
The plan that she said is that it's sort of like an exercise to force herself to get comfortable with working in the framework of a comic and being on a deadline and not being as much of a perfectionist because you got to get it out, <laughs> you know, which we all know about. But uh, it still has the core of that really gorgeous artwork that she does. It's all full color and just beautiful. So highly recommend it. Totally check it out. PM approved. We love anything that uh, Melissa puts together. She's really a fine artist. You can find Melissa on DeviantArt, Twitter, and Tumblr at Dark Sun Rose. Be sure to check her stuff out, like her, friend her, follow her, whatever it is that the site allows you to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's it for housekeeping. So, for our second indie spotlight, we are going to talk about The Tale of Tamarind by Perry Alter. I love this indie spotlight. I, you know, came up with the idea a little while ago and decided to just finally implement it. I was originally... Without telling the rest of the gang, by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really a function of just farting around on Twitter. I mean, as you can imagine, trying to promote Pandamanga and just enjoying getting busy with all of the social media stuff, you run across a lot of stuff. And a big way to be able to get people to follow you and like you or whatever is to follow or like them. And so I get to a place where I'm looking for cool stuff on uh, Twitter in particular is where I found this. And especially Twitter is great because they'll send you those emails saying like, hey, if you heard of this person, they're like this person and then or so and so, you know, all that sort of stuff. There's lots of really sort of synergy on Twitter to help you find cool stuff to follow. And this is one of the comics that I came across. It's called The Tale of Tamarind. It's about this, uh, what I can only assume is a little elf. There's really not a lot of information. Like, there's not an About Us page or anything. It's really just the comic on the page. And you can find it at tamacomic, T-A-M-A, comic.com. Uh, and you can also follow Perry on Twitter at Perry A. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a great little comic. So let me, sh let me show you guys the picture here. So this is the art style. It's pretty simple. It's all done in black and white. There's not a lot of shading. But it's incredibly entertaining. It's basically what looks like swords and shields and sorcerers and orcs and, you know, all that sort of business. And she, she looks like, it looks like, she looks like an elf, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's really like, look around on this page, there is no about or anything, right? So, but she's a little elf and she's this, this epically overpowered badass elf, but she's like maybe two feet tall and <laughs> just this and really skinny cutesy. little thing and adorable. Yeah. And, uh, the first, the first thing is, is this, this big tough looking guy with an eye patch and he comes into the town and he says, I am Gladok, destroy worlds. This village is now part of my mighty empire. If any oppose me, face me now in mortal combat. So be it. Prepare, villagers. Ah, you know, and then this little, excuse me, and it's like angled down. <laughs> and then there's this, this adorable thing that's like her head is like a third the size of her body. And she says, I oppose. And she's got like, the hand kind of just like, like this little tiny nicely. hand like, and these big, yeah. you know, these big like, you know, fish eyes, you know. And he leans down to talk to her and she's like maybe the size of his head and neck. <laughs> 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 and he says, you're joking, right? He says, well, first I gotta stretch. I don't want to get cramps. It's just adorable. It's really, really adorable. And as you move forward, at first he, like, knocks her just, like, out of the park, like, Ron Moon half style, like, you know, sparkle in the distance business. <laughs> and the next thing you know, she comes flying down and, like, drops a tree trunk on him. I mean, she's just, she's a badass. That sounds a lot like my Saturday afternoons. Yes, yes. Well, your Saturday you afternoons are random. I go into random towns, say I'm gonna destroy the world, and say that their town is now part of the Empire, only to get my ass kicked by a four or five year old. I didn't know about that. That's that's news for me. That explains yes. the scars, actually. <laughs> much, yeah. Anyway, definitely recommend that you guys check out The Tale of Tamarind by Perry Alter at tamacomic.com. That is this time's Indie Spotlight. 
So we shine a little spotlight on this great little comic. So make sure to go check it out. Adorable, very entertaining, very, very cool. And again, you can follow Perry on Twitter at Perry A. Spelled P-E-R-R-Y-A. And that's it. So go ahead and check that out. Good stuff. So this time we're doing a comic review on a comic called The Sunless Circus by Chris Kawagiwa. And you can visit his website at chriskawagiwa.com. That's... that's- K-A-W-A-G-I-W-A. We met Chris at last year's APE in October. Of course, if you don't know what APE is, APE is the Alternative Press Expo. It's put on by Comic-Con International, which is basically the big granddaddies of comic convention putter honors. I don't know what the hell that... Like, yeah. it's, it's like the, the definitive comic convention of our continent, <laughs> yeah. our yeah. country. Yeah, so th- th- they're responsible for WonderCon and Comic-Con and Comic-Con East and all that stuff. You Taking know, all my money. Taking all of the Winchester's money, all of it, every last bit. They're responsible for Winchester, you know, being huddled up with some tea and a blanket, waiting in the middle of the night, ready to just like clicking, bye, 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 bye. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you know me so well. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we met we met Chris. Uh, he had a booth at Ape, and Ape is essentially a giant artist's alley. It's like alternative press expo, and it is my favorite convention that I've been to. And the reason is, is that my favorite part of every convention so far has been the Artist's Alley. And it is just one giant Artist's Alley. I mean, it's hundreds of tables. It's insane. And yeah, Artist's Alley, great. even at WonderCon, is is maybe two rows or something. like. So the amount of Artist's Alley at Ape, because it's all Artist's Alley, is probably maybe double what you would get at even something like WonderCon. At least the WonderCon that I went to at the Moscone years ago. So yeah, it's just lots and lots of really cool self-published uh, independent artists. And you find all kinds of neat things that you know you may not find elsewhere, you know. Of course, everybody's advertising themselves on the internet as much as they can, but, you know, you can only run into so much. So it's a cool spot to find things and, and maybe meet some people who put together and self-publish comics or do web comics or whatnot that you run into. And, and that's where we originally found the uh, Yehudi Mercado and his Buffalo Speedway comic, which is freaking awesome. We didn't get to see him there that year, this year, which was really sad. We were hoping we would, but anyway. So we met Chris there, and uh, his comic is about this little robot and... What caught my attention about this comic is I flipped into it and it said, like maybe two pages in, it said, a silent comic. I'm thinking to myself, aren't all comics silent? <laughs> right. But essentially what that means is that there is no dialogue. You know, there, there is maybe a couple of captions here and there, but there's actually no dialogue. Yeah, the only captions you have is one day and a f- many cycles later. Right. There's some sound effects and stuff, but really there's absolutely no dialogue whatsoever. And you're expected to pay attention and, you know, read signs and, you know, things on papers and stuff like that. And it's all very well visually directed and also very, very little. It's like maybe, what, 10 pages, if that. And it contains some of his sketches in the back and some little tickets to the circus that uh, you can tear awesome. out, which is pretty cool. So so let's go around and just talk about, like, just open it up. What, what did you guys think about this? I thought it was pretty charming. And what's interesting about it is it's a story about a robot, right? But the drawing style is actually this really organic kind of style, especially with the way that the colors are, are put in, whether it's digital or, or, or painted in. It has, like, this, you know, this sort of textural quality that you would get from paper or from actual watercolor, you know, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect from a robot. But what it does is it gives that robot a human quality because of that. So you sort of, you know, other than having the robot as the main protagonist of the story, you sort of, what is the word I'm looking at? You sympathize more with it. Just, you know, you're, it's sort of like these unspoken cues to sympathize more because it's got, the, the style's got a little bit of heart. So you come into it with that just right off the bat. 
the look of the the actual design of the robot. It has like kind of a like a white face cover thing on front of him, and he has little lines above and below his eyes, so it has kind of like this clown look to it. But it, the, the face is not hard-edged, it's smooth, and so it allows for some manipulation so that you can have, you know, what otherwise wouldn't be realistically be available emotion-wise. You can kind of tweak and warp the face and get away with a lot to show a lot of emotion from what should, in theory, be, you know, metal and plastic. All right. And looking at the face paint, actually, when I first saw it, it reminded me of a mime, which goes in the whole exactly. silent comic thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a, it's a very textured comic. Lots of details in there. Yeah. Lots of little nuances. I, I think that that's how it would have to be if you really wanted to do a comic with no dialogue. You know, when I first looked at that, I thought to myself, that's ballsy. Actually, that's what yeah. I said to him. I think we have, we have an interview and we'll get it up sooner or later. But that, that, those were my exact words. As I saw that and we were talking to him and I said, so, uh, silent comic, no dialogue. That's, you got some balls, man. And uh, yeah, he wanted to challenge himself to do that. Well, yeah. Like, yeah, and you know, you might think that it's easier because there's no dialogue to write or anything like that. No. But the thing that's difficult about you know any comic art at all is you have to one of the most basic pr principles of making any kind of comic art is the fact that you have to make sure that the what's happening is completely clear only on the power of your artwork you know if you think that's so easy it's it's really not it's extremely difficult i actually like the technique that he uses to to make things he makes it actually really easy too because his use of line weights there's you know thicker lines around things that you they're usually in the foreground it's a common tactic in drawing things well, he uses that line weight to sort of clarify as far as what's important. It almost kind of outlines it, but it's not its not beating you in the face with it. It's, it's subtle and deft, you know? Something that I noticed that he does a couple of times is it's done in the normal portrait style, and it's your kind of, you know, normal st stapled comic. Something that he does in here that's really interesting, a couple of times actually, is he has three small panels across the center of the page you know, as you work your way down. So what he does is he basically, in animation, you have the kind of lead artists, they would draw the key frames. That's where the word keyframes come from, right? They would draw the keyframes, which is typically the most dramatic animated parts. And then they would have the in-betweener artists do the tweening, the in-between work that basically, you know, draws the frames in between those sort of key parts of the sequence. In comics, you pretty much only get to use the key parts of the sequence because that shows the most dramatic movement and it's the easiest way to visually direct what's going on. What's neat about this comic is, is that several times to communicate what someone's doing or how they're moving or what they're doing or, or, you know, part of the story of using visual storytelling when not being able to say anything with dialogue to explain what's happening, he actually does three, maybe four frames in a row, that it's more like looking through somebody's animation stills. It's less the really, really extreme, and, and it's more like kind of like boom, 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 right in a row. And, you know, if you kind of look through it, it almost looks like a flipbook, pages torn from a flipbook, and it's really neat. Go, let's see here. He's got one in the beginning where he has the robot jumping off of the, the board that connects the high wire. And it's got, you know, kind of one, two, three, and, you know, normally you could get away with maybe two instead of three of those here. Like, that middle one isn't really necessary. Oh, right, you know? right. But because he's doing this heavy emphasis on visual direction and visual storytelling instead of using any reliance on dialogue to explain what's happening, he chose to do that. And it's very, very cool, and it's in a couple of the different spots. He's, like, doubling down to make sure it's absolutely visually clear what's going on. Exactly. Well, and what that also does, though, is it sort of gives you a sense of rhythm. Like, there, uh, there, sure. you'll hear, when you hear people talking about making comics, you hear the word pacing a whole lot. It's in films and in other media, too. But pacing in terms of comic panels is really important. So he has yeah, the frame pacing is really a skill. It's pretty much how you uh, 
how you make a reader experience time as they go through the pages. Sure. And when they're evenly spaced like that, you know that this this event is just flowing right through the story. It's great. And when you're doing a high dive, I can just see, you know, going in slow motion as you're trying to experience every microsecond of that. Sure, yeah. sure. He's able to accomplish a lot by using a crap ton, really, of frames on one page. Like, this page has, what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. That's a whole lot. Oh, yeah. And, and, you, and usually you don't want... Yeah. And you also don't want that, especially when you have dialogue. You usually try to limit to 6 or... Right. And it's considered, a lot of the time, or could come across as, like, busy. Yeah. Even if it's an action page with no dialogue anyway, with just some sound effects and, you know, maybe a title or something like that, that many frames on one page is very, very difficult to do and have it still come across as clear know which panel is going where and make the story move forward cleanly without it coming across as jumbled and garbage and just confusing. Yeah, I think he did a really good job with the composition because with this many panels, it doesn't feel that crowded. I think he did a really good job with the, the spacing. And it's very clear what goes where and you know what's first, second, third, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's very neat. Another thing I wanted to say is that I like how it's in black and white. I like the choice to use black and white. I know that color is really, really popular, especially... Uh, you know, especially common in you know Western comics, and I like I like it when someone's willing to go. No, I'm just going to do black and white, and it's not just you know, but mm-hmm. I it's like grayscale. it. <laughs> yeah, it's grayscale yeah. in this, but I like it when people use black and white. And I think that there's a lot you can accomplish. There are certain tones of gray that will suggest a color. You know, there's 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 a lot more to it than just oh, I'm just using black and white. And I think that I think that it shows a high level of skill to be able to really communicate a lot and with a little. And that's why I like black and white so and much. A lot of the textures, I mean, have this almost watercolor feel to them. There's really no flat um, texture. I mean, sure. everything's got some real, like, you can feel the color there, even though it's grayscale. Well, the biggest cue I get from the black and white in general is it's using the sort of vocabulary that film is using, that silent film is using, because sure. all yeah, silent, exactly. you know, silent films tend to be in black and white. And that's sort of what I get from that. Definitely. I'm just, I, I personally just have a thing about black and white. I like, I'm attracted to black and white comics. And it's easy for them to get messy because a lot of the time what you do to do shading is you do, you know, hash marks and lines and things like that. And it can very easily get to be just a garbled mess of, you know, shading lines. And it it can be messy and awful. And obviously that's not what he chose to do here. He's doing some kind of a watercolor thing. But it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. I like this one quite a bit. Anybody have anything else to say? Um, For a comic that has zero dialogue and maybe... 10 pages. It's got a surprising amount of depth and heart. I really empathized with the little robot character. There were a couple of scenes that were really sad and kind of heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. There were some where I was like, yep, been there before. Very skillfully communicated emotion in this. Yes. Very, very skillfully. I think the scene that really got to me was when he was sitting outside with his mouse. Yes. Yes. And you just, when he gets stabbed, you're just like, he has this little robot mouse that's adorable, uh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the patrons step on it and crush it. It's just like, you know, you only met this mouse like a page ago, <laughs> but the way that it's done is just like, oh, and, and the <laughs> thing is, mouse is, that is dead. the mouse is kind of subtle. It's just kind of there on the table in the previous page, and if you don't look carefully enough, you don't notice that it's not just a regular, like, computer mouse. On the end of it is a full-on mouse face and ears and stuff like that. Oh, sure. that was funny, too, because I was look- when I came to it, I went, wait a minute, and I actually went back yeah, to look for it because... Yeah. Because the, yeah, because otherwise it seemed like really abrupt that the mouse shows up out of nowhere. No, but it's there. You have to pay attention. Yeah, and the robot has to plug himself in because, you know, he needs power. He's a robot. And the mouse is just trying to help him out by carrying a solar panel to him. It's just so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think this one's really cool. I think there's a, even though it's just a couple of pages long, it is 
really, really packed full of a lot of beautiful work, a lot of heart, communicating a lot of emotion and, and motion. Uh, you know, there's some, you know, kind of action type scenes. And it's just, it's a great comic. I was really, really happy with it when I came across it at Ape and was really glad they hooked us up with it so that we could do a review. Why don't we go around and give, uh, give our review out of five issues? Now, obviously, the issues thing, because this is just a one-shot sort of thing, it's not going to be as easy to describe like normal. So just think one out of five stars. You know, how many yeah. how many out of five stars? It's like one out of five pages. <laughs> <laughs> I would say five. Having gone to school for film and really, it, silent films are actually one of my favorite genres. Really? Yeah. It just, it really spoke to me. I just loved, even though it was so short, you got so much out of it. So I would definitely say five out of five for me. Definitely. Thank okay. You. Ah, uh, three point five. And if you've heard any uh, any of my scores before, usually my you know my good score is a three. So that's saying a lot for this one right here. Um, there's a high degree of technical skill that I really like, and also there's also and the fact that the comic actually made me not have to think about the technical skill at all was really good. So um, I'm going to have to give it a four. Now, obviously, we said that this is kind of a one shot, but if like there was kind of more issues that were in the same style, maybe even in the same universe, that were kind of put together as a trade, um, you know, tales of this universe or whatever, I would be more than happy to pick it up, you know, 40 page, you know, same cost as four. So comics. you're definitely yeah. desiring more. I would, I'm definitely desiring more. This story is complete and whole, and I wouldn't want to see more from this character, but the universe or this style would be just wonderful to see more of. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that I'll give it a solid four as well. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I like the art, I like the pacing, I like the just the emotion. There's just so much to appreciate in this. It's amazing how much time I was able to spend reading it, even though it is technically just a couple of pages. It's just a pretty short comic. There was so much there to really, especially as an artist, to just pour over and appreciate all the little details, all of the you know the care taken to the line weight and the textures, and just it's lovely. It's a lovely comic. The, the only reason that I didn't give it anything higher than that, because unlike Pinku, I'm willing to rate pretty high. <laughs> hey, there are comics I would give a five. They're just flawless. Sure, sure, sure. sure. The, only, the only thing that got me a little confused in this one, or maybe dropped it down a little bit, is that the story takes this rather abrupt jump, like, years into the future, or many yeah. cycles, you yeah. know, and which is adorable. I love that. But it seems like there's a lot left to be... Just, it's confusing, you know? Like, at the end, the, like, the last two pages is kind of like, and what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Quick ending. Yeah, exactly. There was this, it seems like for the first little bit that it's this endearing comic about this sort of sad circus clown robot automaton, you know? And his adorable little mouse person and him just trying to, you know, make something more of himself. You know, it shows him reading reading a book about economics and, you know, it looks like he wants to become a businessman and be more than just a circus performer. And I think we can all identify with that. <laughs> so it endears you to him quite a bit. But then he runs off and leaves this circus entertainment profitability analysis paper on his bed. And the seemingly bad guy that runs the circus picks it up. And then the next thing you know, our main automaton is walking around. He looks like he's grown for some reason. <laughs> Why not? You know, and he's got a business suit on and looks like he accomplished his dream, which is really cool. But and then traveling he, salesman. Yeah, but then he gets out and it looks like he's surprised and maybe sad or appalled or something as he's standing outside of what is now Telemann Financial instead of the Telemann Circus. And it looks like 
the guy. I'm, I'm assuming that the the circus, you know, ringmaster. Was that what they call them? Yeah. 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 yeah that the ringmaster. He took that information and then used it to make himself a successful businessman and not a <laughs> well, circus guy anymore. Like if you remember, it's just like what is happening? If you remember, <laughs> that last page confused the crap out of me. Like he's reading the economic analysis book in the dark and. The ringmaster kind of comes up to his trailer and like knocks on the door because he sees a light on. Yeah, he doesn't want him reading. He it. doesn't want him reading it because he doesn't want him to leave the circus. So he doesn't want him to make himself get bitter. So he takes which the is book all from things him. we're assuming. All yeah. his motivations are things we're assuming because there's not a word said. Right. right. But that's kind of the way that I felt, that's and he sense. definitely took the book from him. Sure, sure, sure. So when you add those two together, kind of makes some semblance. Of that, sense. that goes more close. What I was thinking too is that he left the circus, so the circus left him. You know, it's yeah. out of this world because he wasn't there to save it and support it mm-hmm. in some ways. And I just I almost feel like I would be would have been happy without that last frame, or even that last page, just that him leaving or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It would have felt. Even though it was maybe a little bit less of a complete story, more complete to me somehow, because then it wouldn't have left me being like, "Well, how did we get here?" So, honestly, <laughs> did, I how does he feel about either this? Way. Yeah, in I, some ways, it's like a slap in the face. Too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really was jarring yeah. when when there's so much detail put into such a small amount of time and every little page, all this information about an afternoon, basically. And then all of a sudden, whoosh. Like See, I felt like it feature. was a couple of, at well, least that's a couple what, of days, I know, but yeah. I mean, each page, there's so much detail in each of the little scenes and so much information. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the time span is, is, is a lot going on for a short amount of time. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, into the future. It's, it was jarring, I guess. I just took it as, you know what? Sometimes life just isn't fair. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, really, this is very much a nitpicky complaint. <laughs> On the whole, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, let's uh, just just plug Chris. So, Chris Kawagiwa, K-A-W-A-G-I-W-A.com. Check his stuff out. He's got a lot of other really lovely things. He's worked for a lot of really excellent companies. He's credited with working with Disney and a bunch of other stuff and does a lot of you know, advertising work, and he's really an illustrator. He's not just a comic artist. He's a whole lot more. He's a very, very fine artist. So check his stuff out. More comics, more work sketches, all that sort of stuff on his website. You can like him on Facebook. He's just a good guy. So check his stuff out. Chris Kawagiwa. After we come back from the break, we'll get into a little bit of movie news. You're listening to Geek Live. Don't go anywhere. Geek Live, Panda Manga's podcast. We're going to get into our movie segment now, and we're going to start off with a little thing that John really, really loves. Star Wars! Particularly, we are talking about the fact that J.J. Abrams is set to helm the next Star Wars movie. Helm is indirect. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, what do we think about this? Like, like Winchester, you're the movie buff. I... Well, and it's funny because I wore my Star Trek sweatshirt <laughs> tonight. I, I'm on the fence about it. Like, yep. either either it's going to be mind-blowing amazing because I loved the 2009 Star Trek reboot 
with JJ as the director. I thought it was fantastic. It really it was brilliant. It was faithful. Yeah, it, it was, was faithful. It brought yeah. it track into the 21st century for a whole new generation. That whole deviating, you know, story alternate, arc, reality. alternate reality is brilliant. Uh, like it even that's what everybody complains about. Whenever there's a reboot, there's always that that hardcore fan audience, especially if if it's a reboot of something that has source material. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's a fan of the source material is is absolutely rabid about it. This uh, time it's going to be in line. It damn well better. Like right. the new Judge Dredd where it's like, they better not take off that damn mask. Yeah, Because you, right, exactly. you know the Dredd fans everywhere were like, <laughs> when Stallone's one came out. And in the freaking commercial, he took his mask off. Everybody was like, no, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, either it's going to be fantastic or it's going to suck. I, you really feel like there's no margin. Just, I, there's no gray area. Well, uh, I I think there I think with JJ Abrams track record I think there's a I would say an 85 to like 90% chance it's going to be great. Yeah. Um so I I do think that there's going to be a, a pretty small margin of error but I think with the track record that Star Wars has developed for itself over the past couple of decades. And yeah. I know with the last uh, movie podcast, we were talking sort of about, you know, being disappointed by Lucas for, you Yeah, know. we had an, an entire podcast dedicated to what we thought Lucas would do to ruin <laughs> right. things if he exactly. Lucasized right. them. I mean, it's... But um, I kind of... it When it came out that J.J. was going to be directing it, it made me go back to an interview that Simon Pegg was giving about J.J. Abrams. And he said that... To him, having J.J. take over Star Trek, it's like the ultimate thing that you would want any fanboy to have. You know, this is something you love and cherish. And to see a fanboy actually get to take it over, it kind of it almost gives you some sort of like comfort sure. that he's going to do that. Because back in... Because Abrams himself has respect for the source material. Well, last November he came out because it was rumored that they were... They had approached him back in November, and he said that he wouldn't do it because he felt it was, like, massive sacrilege. Like, he just, he he couldn't wrap his head around doing it. And that he said... Star Wars. Star Wars. Mm-hmm. He's, he didn't have that issue with Star Trek because he, he wasn't a Star Trek fan going, growing up. So he could go into it with a fresh mind. But being a fan of Star Wars, going into it, he's like, this this isn't okay. You know, I, I shouldn't do this. But, you know, now that he's taken it on, I think that that could really work in the film's advantage. For I, sure. I'm excited to see what happens because I would say that I mean, uh, uh, probably a very it's difficult to describe what Abrams has done and, and how, you know, how good he is. Because, you know, one moment I'm thinking, wow, he's really a, a high quality, you know, modern filmmaker who's clear about the modern techniques and it's really streamlined and slick and his movies are, are excellent. But then he goes and he does something like Super 8, which is just this homage to all of the sort of like 90s classic uh, mm-hmm. Spielberg stuff. And it has that feel. Mm-hmm. It still manages to do that, even though it's a brand spanking new movie. And right. so I'm thinking to myself, the range that this guy has mm-hmm. is really impressive. Yeah. And, that, and there's a, there's almost difficult to describe, but there's a feel to the Star Wars movies, you know, or especially the original trilogy. There's a very distinct sort of just energy about them. Every time that new Star Wars movies are announced, or any time any new Star Wars anything, I'm always kind of curious if they're going to be able to keep that vibe. And the vibe was 
relatively well kept through the you know the the prequel trilogy, mm-hmm. even though arguably it wasn't anywhere near as good. But they still had that sort of campy, tongue in cheek silliness to it at times, it's like and, a nostal- nostalgic. Sure, like, sure, yeah. and. For me, one of the things that I like so much about Star Wars, outside of the stuff I've already talked about in previous podcasts about how impressive the universe is and how complete and full and depthy it is, I like how kind of self-aware and campy it's willing to be, Mm -hmm. even though it is science fiction at its greatest in some cases, or at least at the time. When it first came out, it was like the finest science fiction movie ever, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. You know? And so... You know, carrying that mantle forward, it's great. And now that there's so many other excellent science fiction movies, I feel like Star Wars has a responsibility to not to either be the best science fiction movie again or to continue on with that kind of Abrams quality, but still manage to hold on to all of the kind of funny, silly shit that we grew up really liking about Star Wars. Because right. Star Wars totally didn't take itself seriously. A kiss for luck. Are you kidding? You know? Everybody's laughing out loud at that. It's so campy, but it's so campy on purpose. Not campy because it's trying it's hard and it fails. Right. Exactly. So there's, you know, and I, I don't know how, how else to describe it, but there's just this kind of feel to Star Wars that I really feel like I hope that they can hold on to. I and remember. Then, and, but, but it wasn't held on to with the Star, uh, Star Trek movies. Because yeah. Star Trek... Had a similar but way higher amount of camp, but there was always some sort of campy silliness in Star Trek. Right. Even the more serious later series, there was always silly shit. And there was a couple yeah. episodes here and there spread out that were just goofy. Yeah, you know, and and that that was not carried through to the new reboot. No, well, which I loved. <laughs> I liked the new reboot. Um, guy likes to use a little bit too much lens flare, especially in that flick. <laughs> <laughs> but I did go back and I watched Super 8 and I watched uh, Mission Impossible 3 this week. A lot of lens flare in those as well. So that's part of his trademark style, I'm guessing. Uh, as long as it's not a bunch of doves. I'm just, so but, done with the doves. Yeah. I just I just want to see a lightsaber lens flare. Yes! <laughs> I'm done. Soul. Someone, someone on Tumblr actually did a, 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 a gif set of the original. They're like, Original series, J.J. Abrams. <laughs> it's when Luke and Darth Vader are fighting, and there's this huge, massive lens flare in the middle of it. I'm like, I'm sold. It's going to be awesome. Okay, you know, the next time we have a break, I'm just going to go find that Tumblr and reblog it. <laughs> just get my page. I think I reblogged oh, it like five yeah. times. Awesome. <laughs> so funny. It's, it's like every single uh, director, even the really, really fine ones like J.J., they have that one thing. <laughs> It's just like, are you sure you need to do that? Well, it's better than, say, like, explosions or something. Or the super slow Zack Snyder shot stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but see, Zack Snyder does the super slow movement ones because there's girls that are wearing barely anything Uh, jumping through the air. Or guys wearing barely anything jumping jumping through through the air. air. Exactly. And everybody's kind of like, slow it down, man. It's all good. Break it down. Yeah. need to fill 20 minutes? (laughs) Deal. Sometimes. Cuts down on the cost of making the movie, right? <laughs> uh, but it's weird to me to... There were a lot of people who were like, Yeah, this is awesome, this Abrams movie yeah, for Star Trek. And then all of a sudden, there are a lot of those same people who thought that he totally revived the Star Trek series and were very impressed with it, who now hear that he is doing the Star Wars series and like... Really? That guy? That's a whole lot of horse shit. I can't believe they brought the same that people? guy. Yeah, some of them are the same reviewers. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, as for the Star Trek thing, 
I remember there was somebody that I used to go to church with, and she was old school hardcore Star Trek fan. And I was asking her about the new movie, and she's like, "If you want a good sci-fi movie and a good action sci-fi movie, then this will fill your boat. If you want a good Star Trek movie, not really a good Star Trek movie." Um, and I can totally see where she's going with that. I mean, Star Trek was always about exploration, kind of peace, and you know, it's very much sort of more thing. of a reimagining of Star. Yeah, Star but if Trek you look than, at than... if you look at all the next generation films. They're all action movies. The only difference is they're all pure crap. So, <laughs> no, I like the I like the one with Tom Hardy. Never really? Because Tom Hardy's awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a man crush on Tom Hardy. <laughs> I realize you do. A lot of guys do. He's so He's awesome. awesome. Was, no, I agree. That was Nemesis. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I see what you mean. I, I like it now specifically because I see it and I'm like, that's Tom Hardy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um. If for all the Trekkies out there, there's actually a really great documentary that Gene Roddenberry's son uh, did called oh, Trek Nation. Oh, cool. Uh, he did it sort of as a way of um, finding out who his father really was, because he died when his son was really, really young. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and was subsequently shot into the sun. Right, exactly. <laughs> basically. Um, like a boss. There's this great... Uh, he he talks to like every actor that has ever been in Star Trek. He well, talks being to, run very son, he must have like the keys to the kingdom. Oh, absolutely! Like he even has. There's this great interview with George Lucas in it, oh, cool. where Eugene Roddenberry, his um, Gene Roddenberry's son, brings him like an original phaser, and like even George Lucas like goes from a hole to like total fanboy. He's like, holy crap, you know? But That's awesome. At the end, but at the end of the tying into what he was saying was that, you know, so many of the original hardcore Trekkies outright refused to see the new movie. And I always thought it was really interesting. And then I saw this um, documentary where they showed this clip of Gene Roddenberry and they asked him point blank, would you be okay with someone going back and revisiting what you created? And he said, I love it. He's like, I would love to see a new director, a new writer, come back, revisit what I did, and make it their own. And so, and to me, that I thought that was very interesting, and I would like love to show it, that to the trackies that are like, no, I'm not seeing it ever. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and we have the luxury of Lucas not being dead. <laughs> True. <laughs> you know, and, and he, he's still, even, even in the interviews talking about the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney, he was still saying that he was going to be in, a, in, in an advisory position. Yeah. So his depth of knowledge, his understanding of the universe that he 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 created, it, it's still there. It's still available. Yeah. You know, the Absolutely. man himself is still around. So you know, in theory, as long as the people working on the projects along with Abrams are willing to tap into that resource, they can have it be as much like the originals as they like. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. In regards to the Star Trek thing again. There's a wonderful, wonderful movie podcast called Better in the Dark, and they have an episode that's specifically about Star Trek, the TV series and the movies. And one of the nice things is that you have one of the guys on there, Thomas DJ, who is not a fan of the Star Trek franchise. So you have a couple other people. Is he a Star Wars fan? Yes, he's a He's a sci-fi fan. He's just like, Star Trek isn't his cup of tea. But they go into a lot of the backstories as to, you know, when Gene Roddenberry was starting to be phased out, why they went into certain directions that they did and certain things. And it's a really fascinating behind-the-looks kind of scenes as to 
how things changed and kind of why. As far as Star Wars goes, I hate to break it to you, JP, but uh, not the biggest Star Wars fan. I don't hate it. I just don't love it. You know, I like it. For me, growing up, the movies that like got me into sci-fi were The Last Starfighter, Flight of the Navigator, oh, which, they're so good. which they're remaking. Which they're remaking. Are they really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, Aliens. So it was those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And, you know, Star Wars was in the rotation. It was just never the big thing for me. Sure. Well, I think the reason why I was always identifying with Star Wars is because even before I started seriously practicing martial arts, I was, like, into martial arts and mm-hmm. Asian culture and stuff. And it's all of that is drawn heavily oh, yeah. in Star Wars. Star Wars has a huge amount of allegories to, you know, different things in martial arts, Zen Buddhism, all that sort of stuff. And you can look into Lucas's sort of travels and, you know, studies of all that. And it's it's a lot of that is poured into the movies very lovingly. So that that whole side of things resonates with me. And it resonated with me even before I knew that that's where it was coming from and even knew what the word allegory meant as a little <laughs> kid. I still appreciated it because that... Because all of that, the you know, the martial arts and the the sacrifice for others and the the you know training under a master and you know hard work and effort equals outcome and all that sort of stuff, that's a big part of what attracts me to martial arts and Asian in mean, traditional Asian warrior culture and everything mm-hmm. is fascinating to me and it resonates with me deep down. And so I think by proxy, Star Wars very much resonated with me like that, even though it was still high camp level silly and fun and there's a lot of other reasons to like it. But at its core, I appreciate what the Jedi represents, because to me it represents like a martial artist, you know? So power through microorganisms. Oh, see, we just need... The machete order is how things work out, and there is no episode one. Hey, they talk about it in episode three, midichlorians. I don't hear it. Two lines. Two lines. Very, very briefly. Uh, How much other stuff do they say in the Star Wars movies where it's just like, okay, I have no idea what that means. Just keep on going, guys. If you... I think that, like, Star Wars, the original trilogy, and the new trilogy has, or especially Episode One, they're very, very, very important, I think, in the whole, like, history of movie making, as far as telling the story of movie making, because that was, Star Wars is the thing that really launched sci-fi movies. Oh, you're talking about three, four, and five. Yeah. Or sorry, four, four five, five, and six. six and then later on, one. And I'll explain that later. So four, five, and six, really, they kicked off a lot of sci-fi things. You wouldn't have... The technology the, they had for you know making the ships move around in space was created and pioneered in that movie. Yeah, and then you wouldn't like have that. the Star Trek, the motion picture, and those things if it wasn't for Star Wars. You wouldn't have things like... Battlestar Galactica, and then the good remake of Battlestar Galactica in the 2000s. (laughs) Probably not even Flash Gordon from the 80s, which is basically just a movie that's an excuse to have a Queen soundtrack. (laughs) Uh, But Star Wars Episode One is really the first time that you really see a serious backlash, and it's pretty much the epitome of disappointment for from a fan's perspective and kind of fan rage. I mean, that's really, I mean, internet was just starting to come around in its own. And that was really like the benchmark thing for people just being really disappointed in something. Well, and it was ramping up to that with the yeah. re-releases of the enhanced editions or all mm-hmm. these changes we were all so excited about, but then so many of them were awful. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to get into that. We've done that before. Look a couple episodes back, but you know, that, I think that we were heading into that already. And somehow, in the midst of all that, we were still willing to 
suspend our disbelief and think it's going to be cool because it's new and it's Star Wars, even though all the new Star Wars stuff done by Lucas himself so far had, had been awful. And if you watch the special features on The Phantom Menace, which why not? Because it's not better than watching the movie itself. <laughs> Lucas refers to, well, he changes the pronunciation of the Gungas every time he says the thing. <laughs> The, and he refers to lightsabers multiple, multiple, multiple times as laser swords. I just can't really imagine the guy who created all of that not remembering the name and still technically having it, you know? It was almost... It just felt wrong in some ways watching that special features and him referring to, okay, and we'll have a laser sword battle here and stuff like that. I think I'm I, kind of glad that he's not in yeah. charge of it anymore. Well, I can kind of get that from the creative process, especially on a movie project. You have so many different creative minds involved. Everyone's going to add a little something, and maybe those really aren't Lucas's things. Like, everyone will like it better if you call it a lightsaber as a laser sword. I mean, laser sword's so generic, George. Come on. And now all the cast is like, yeah, lightsaber, dude. Yeah, but at some point, you know, yeah. Learn the it's, name. Learn the name. And don't be stubborn. <laughs> learn your franchise jerk. Yeah, to be fair, at some point in the creative process, especially something huge like a movie, you're going to be that thing over there with the stuff. You know, yeah. so it's like you're not going to be always calling it exactly what it right. should be. But you know, when Mark Hamill gets stopped on the street and has to basically explain the differences between various types of X-wing fighters, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like for Lucas. I don't think Lucas allows himself to be in those situations. No, that's true. That's Lucas true. has too much money. He's got two Jedi with him at all times. That's not the question yeah, you want to ask. Um, I think one of the reasons why I'm excited for JJ to take over Star Wars is he's very much aware of the different areas that the Star Wars... Well, it, he did it with Star Trek, where the script for Star Trek is actually based off of a couple of Star Trek books. Mm. And so I'm interested to see what he's going to do with the universe that is set in the book realm of Star Wars, because that's such a huge. You know, the funny thing is, that. is that the first, the the episode one, two, and three ruined a lot of the stuff that was considered cool. canon from the extended universe books. Right, and what I what I th I think what I was trying to get at was. Mm -hmm is I think J.J. would be able to at least restore some of that. Uh, if, that would be or, excellent. You know, depending on where it's going to be. Because I was reading somewhere online. I don't know if it's going to be necessarily his or if it's... Because I know they're playing multiple, multiple, multiple new Star Wars. Well, there's at least three more planned. Yeah. I mean, I, when, when they first were talking they're about they're it... They're also talking about a young Han Solo they're, movie they're, in between the... And Boba Fett. And Boba Fett. They're going to be yeah. like standalone films. Well, there's a lot. That's wow. the thing about Lucas's universe is it's so depthy that you can yeah, do you a can lot. Do infinite. But but they had said that there was originally nine movies. Yeah. Nine installments, and and the people that were privy to the information, or at least the synopsis of each one, or outline, or whatever that was available at the time, several of them, or the person that was writing the article, or interviewed in the article, whatever. Anyway, the article was saying that that some people really felt like the stories that were the most exciting. Were seven, eight, and nine, yeah. which is yeah. what we're heading into. And the thing that's interesting about that is that they're stories that Lucas has never put into a book. Has never let somebody, never hired somebody on to to novelize the the screenplay for those things. So there's there are stories that are really truly part of the Star Wars universe that we haven't even seen yet. Yeah. Well, he had said initially that he had always imagined it as a nine part movie series until he got a lot of the backlash with. One, two, and three. Then he's like, no, I just meant a six-part series. <laughs> so, yeah. 
pretty pretty exciting. So either way, there's definitely a lot of interesting drama around this. And I think that more than anything, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, very, very exciting, though. Looking forward to that. And as we move forward and get closer to it, which, you know, it'll be a while, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll continue to give updates and talk about that because it's definitely an interesting subject. So after the break, we're going to come back and talk about movie reboots appropriately. You're listening <laughs> to Geek Life. With movie reboots, first up is talking about our favorite reboots. So, what's your favorite reboot? Oh God, um, I think or a couple. You know, the one favorite's a little bit harsh. Uh, one favorite is a little harsh. I would have to say probably the best in the past for me in the past ten years would probably be the, the Christian Bale Batman trilogy. Yeah. After so many agonizing years of really god awful Joel Schumacher. <laughs> Batman films and bat nipples. I, you know, it was really nice to see Christopher Nolan take Batman back to his dark origins and really give a film trilogy, a Batman justice in a film trilogy. That was really, really good. It really does feel like the definitive Batman trilogy. Absolutely. No question. Yeah. I, I do like the early Keaton ones. The Keaton ones are really; those are good. But they 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 so have the flavor of Burton, and Burton has a flavor in all of his films. Yeah, he has a flavor. Um, It was surprising that Helen Barton Carter wasn't in that, but I, I think with the Burton films, they were more off of the '60s. TV show. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, yeah. It wasn't the comic, whereas Dude, Nolan... The comic is dark. I mean, like, yeah. it can be. I don't know. I don't know. It can jump all over the place, yeah. I'm sure, like those things over the well, years. Well, the, ma- the majority... Because the ancient stuff was... He was just a detective. He didn't yeah. have any of his goodies. He, no. You know. um, a lot of where Nolan got his storyline was the Frank Miller Batman comic books, which are about as dark... Shocker. As dark can get, but they're there to the me. Killing joke was that Miller? No, that no. was that was Alan, Alan, Moore. Alan, Moore. Alan Moore. Right. Um, of course, The Dark Knight Returns is Dark Knight yeah, Rises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very dark. They're, mm-hmm. I mean, to me that those books set the tone for the next couple of decades worth of Batman comics that we're seeing now. Totally. Totally. It's always exciting when something really is faithful to the source material. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, with the comic books, it's hard, though, because there's kind of so many different flavors of source material. There's so many years Oh, of my God, material. right? I mean, yeah. I can only imagine how, how hard it must have been when they were originally doing, like, the, the Ninja Turtles movies. Because <laughs> I, I was looking through all of the Ninja Turtles that have existed over the years, and there's a crap ton. Now, granted, a lot mm-hmm. of them is, is, are post those movies, but yeah. the really early Ninja Turtle stuff was violent and and, like... Just crazy, totally yeah. different. Oh, than, yeah. You know, it's it's like I don't even know. I mean, it seems like movies are being more and more willing to push the the boundaries of violence and subject matter these days than they were, you know, ten twenty years ago mm-hmm. or and beyond. And so I think that just now we're starting to get into a place where, and I've said this before, it feels like kind of like the golden age of comic book movies. 
I agree, yeah. And I feel like Nolan has come out and been like, yeah, but they're not just fun. They can be serious. They can be, you know, you know, telling like a, a drama. It's mm-hmm. not just, you know, boys and their toys. Right. Well, the way I see it with comic book movies in general right now, I think what's happening is people are realizing, well, I, at least I hope that people are realizing that what we like about comics is, is you know, the fact that they're good stories. It doesn't matter the, that they're superheroes or in spandex or, sure. you know, or not. Sure. Just yeah. because it's comics, it's not for kids. It never was just for kids. Well, the it's entire a, idea a, that comics are for kids put comics in, in this, like, a veritable dark age for the longest and time. And it's such a terrible generalization, too, because if you look back at the historical roots of comics, you're looking at, like, what, the 1920s? It was actually more of a way that people, you know, were able to consume art on a mass um, on a mass scale, because yeah, and, it was, all, and yeah. it was also a gateway to literacy for a lot of people. And sure. the storylines originally were way more diverse, where they actually had, like, contemporary drama and that sort of thing at Absolutely. the time. So when it fades away, when it faded away, it's sort of like, well, what about this entire history of not these stories for kids? You know, I, I can remember when we were looking into the history of comics and, and that, I forget what, what it's called, but there was, what was that? It was like there the was comics a, code piece? Yes, yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and when I, when I finally really dug in, because there was a great lecture about the comics code at Ape this past year, oh, yeah. and it was really fascinating. And... The knowledge now, moving forward, that comics spent so long being so squeaky clean, it's I feel a little bit less sacrilegious being like, I'm so tired of superhero stuff. Yeah. Because I can remember when I was a little kid, surprise, surprise, I loved all that stuff. <laughs> but then I took like a hiatus from reading comics regularly, still enjoyed them, still was like a you know, appreciated them, but it wasn't like I'm going to the comic book store, I'm buying cards, I'm buying comic books, I'm buying pages, I'm keeping up on issues, I'm subscribed to DC, whatever. And I came back in in high school and people started showing me Japanese comics and I'm like, holy crap, these are diverse, it's not just a bunch of superheroes, it's horror, it's romance, it's romantic comedy, it's drama, it's violence, it's future, it's sci-fi, it's western, it's what the fuck ever they want to do. People die and stay dead. Yeah, oh, exactly. Right, right. And it, it's, it's so, it, it, it was kind of like, oh man, comics can be so much more, and so can animation, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, and, and so I attribute a lot of that to being introduced to Japanese comics, and it seems like Japanese comics didn't go through the comics code dark ages, or at least, you know... Weren't there when I ran into them. And when I was growing up, it's still, even though we were kind of maybe on the tail end of that, it was still so much just squeaky clean superhero stuff. And I'm just so done with that. For so long I've been done with that. And I felt, but I didn't like to say that out loud because people were like, oh, superheroes, you don't appreciate comics, you know. But it's just like, that's not true. And it's it's, to get that more mature perspective, I don't really, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just, it doesn't need to be like that. And that's really not a reflection of how great comics are. It's a reflection of how comics found a way to survive in the middle of a bunch of oppression. Yeah. You know, I think we're also, uh, even um, we could be going through a uh, golden age of of superhero comic movies right now, but I think also just regular comics in general are going through a golden age where a lot of indie stuff is, you know, being sold nationwide in bookstores and that sort of thing because, you know, it's just, I, I really hope that people are realizing this, just another medium as it had as as it started and as it is now because you know we're getting a lot of diversity in genre with things that are not published under the big two i would argue that comics are are potentially i mean i'd have to really look into this a little bit more before i would willing to say like a broad sweeping statement but 
I kind of hold that comics are, at least in some cases, the ultimate medium for, for, for communicating a story. Because it gives you the opportunity to show what something looks like. It gives you the opportunity to tell a similar kind of story as you could do in film or whatever. But at the same time, you can get away with the uh, inner monologue and dialogue that you can have in, in books, which is so lost when in translation to film. There's so much more information and meat and internal monologue going on in a book that feels appropriate, that works, that doesn't hinder the story or feel forced, that would in a film. And in a comic, because it's sort of in between the two worlds, you can still get away with a lot of the extra information and meat and history and and, and just good stuff that a a novel has the luxury of being able to fit in there while still communicating visually as well. So I think that comics have a kind of a unique sort of straddling the fence position to be able to, that we're totally getting off topic, but that, <laughs> yeah. but I, I really feel very strongly that comics, comics are uh, in some cases have an opportunity to do something that, that no other medium can make happen. Yeah. You know, film is very limited while still because com- people like to say film or games or something like that. Games in particular, a lot of people are saying these days, are combining basically all the different forms of media and are considered the ultimate form of media because it combines everything. It's interactive. There's audio. There's visual. There's You can have reading. It's like anything you can imagine media-wise can be squeezed into a video game. And so there's a lot of people, especially in the independent game community, that are, that are wide-eyed and excited instead of you know just trying to hit the bottom line. Are, they really feel like, man, this is an opportunity to have the highest form of art possible because all different forms of media and art can be squeezed into this thing. And I feel kind of like comics, in a way, is able to do that sort of mm-hmm. same sort of thing, minus obviously the audio or the visual or like okay. the motion, you know. But it is able to straddle that. And it's, it's in a unique position to tell stories that, in some ways, just don't work. Right. You know, and a good detective movie is either going to have a lot of campy internal monologue to really fit that detective noir feel. Or it's going to omit a lot of that, and it's going to be this, and and that's a loss, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, well, you know, I think each medium has its strength and cons. Sure, it's great because it has a little bit of everything. Right, right. But I just don't because yeah. I, I just I hate it when people feel like comics are for kids or comics are limited or something like that. You know, it's like I really feel like comics is right up there with the other kinds of of, of yeah. storytelling. Well, I think you know, a couple of generations die off, and it'll be a lot more acceptable. Yeah, got, there's so there's some generations you need to die before a lot of cool yeah. stuff can happen. <laughs> Anyway, so about reboots. So, 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 yeah. So, did we ever get to your favorite reboots? Uh, Well, well, I said the Dark Knight trilogy. Okay, so Piku, what would you say? (laughs) You know, actually, that that actually is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, because I, you know, I don't have one that that wins number one in my heart. But the first thing I think about is the Batman one because it's sort of like the standard for a reboot of, especially of a comic franchise. This is how you do it. You stay true to the roots, and I think. Based on a lot of the things that were done in in the new in the more recent Batman trilogy, like the fact that it's darker and grittier, I think a lot of people tried to take that dark and gritty part as opposed to say the just making the story good and true, mm-hmm. and they thought that maybe making something else darker and grittier in other versions of uh, superheroes and superhero movies is was the correct course of action when maybe it wasn't. Well, I mean, it's dark and gritty because the source material is dark right. and gritty. It's As the reason why to... it excels is because it's a well-crafted story and yeah. well-directed, right. well-filmed right. cinematography. All that is at a high level. It happens to be gritty because it's telling a it's gritty story. Batman. Exactly. Gotham is dark. It Gotham. Goth is in the name. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> like it's you know it's you know it's grand. It's all these. It's dramatic. It's all these things. I, anyway, but um, 
other than other than the Batman trilogy, I actually thought um, one of my favorite ones was the Dread remake. It was underrated. That. Agreed. It was so so good. It was so understated, and it was just so good. It it's now I saw it after. Um, I actually saw the original Dredge, Judge Dredd movie after we oh, went really? to go see When we saw it together, actually, the, oh, okay. that night, we went back and watched the original. Huh. And, <laughs> and I knew about, you know, I knew about some things. I knew about the comic, and I sort of had a passing familiarity with the comic, and I knew that he never took off his helmet. So when we saw the scene where Stallone takes off his helmet, I just sort of went, okay, that's <laughs> painful if you're a fan. But what I appreciated about it was the thing that both movies had that I thought was was a good strength was the fact that Dredd was the sort of guy who knew his rules and he he was totally by the book in different ways. Like in in the Stallone version, for example, it's he knew or in the opening scene where they're they're shooting at him, he's like, oh, it's not going to hit me from whatever range it was going to hit him because he knew the exact specs of the the sure, weapons they were sure, using. Sure. Mm-hmm. But but uh, you know, and the, and then in the remake, it just had him acting like a guy who acted towards the book, whether you know for better or for worse. So, but I just really liked how the new remake was an under, it wasn't trying to be as grandiose as the original yeah. movie was, where that was just sort of like a spectacle of a well, movie. Well, it felt like it was, again, faithful to the source material. That yeah. seems to be a key. And we'll get into the things that we feel are elements and whether or not it's okay to reboot something a little later. But that seems to be a really huge, important part to I be faithful so. to the source material. Because the deviations from the source material, all of a sudden, it's kind of like now you're just in, in, in like random, t- it's, it's almost like, Hey, I just, uh, you know, I read this uh, comic book called The Hulk, where some guy gets mad and turns green and giant and really powerful. That's awesome. Teenage power fantasy. Let's, yeah, but, but what, I'm sa- <laughs> what I'm saying is that, like, somebody reads that and goes, hey, let's make a Hulk movie. And then when you get, you know, when you really get down to making the movie, it's like, he gets mad and he gets stronger, but he doesn't turn green and there's no gamma radiation. He's yeah. an alien. It's like, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I mean, not that right. that happened or anything, but <laughs> it can, it goes that way when, when you allow, it's, it's like it's opening Pandora's box. As soon as you yeah. start to deviate from the source material, it's like, where do you draw the line? Yeah. And you can just, it just spins out of control. Well, I think it takes an understanding of what was good about the original thing in the first place. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's the same point about the comics. These are good stories. They, they're popular for a reason. You need to pay attention when you remake a thing. And I think a lot of people get t- caught up in the title. Like you said, Star Wars is a bunch of memes that have been around for ages. But if you make the same story again and took away the sci-fi aspect, you can't call it Star Wars because the name has so much you know, tone set to it. Sure. So you really have to set expectations of how you name it. Absolutely. So what, what do you think would you say is your favorite reboot? Uh, it's not a movie reboot, but I'm going to go with it anyways. Uh, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, if you would have okay. yeah, yeah. asked me in the late 90s if I wanted to, all, wanted to watch Battlestar Galactica, I'd be hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Even after the reboot, I'm like, this is amazing. i got to go back and watch the 70s shit. My friend's like, no, don't. So I think they took something that was, I guess, dear to someone's heart and just completely remade it and breathed so much life into it. And I really like the the reboot. It's very amazing. So they probably you think they would they saw what was good about the original and just sort of cut everything out. Well, I haven't seen the original original, so I can't really say too uh, much what they did. Uh, it's very so cheap. Did you say that? I felt it, I, they basically took about two percent of the original <laughs> and then cut out the ninety eight percent of crap. They added their, some of their own crap. Yeah. Yeah. And added there were Cylons, own. there were humans, there were battling space. Go. I mean, I think the ship was called Galactica. Uh, yeah, really, like really, the only thing that's like recognizable is Cylon. But even even with like the '70s Cylons versus the remake Cylons, I love that they did 
include the 70s Cylons true. in the new remake of it. it I always it, liked the look of the 70s Cylons. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really great design. And, and just, you know, and then, because I'm, you know, I watched the remake first. I had never seen the original. Same. And everyone was like, well, let's watch this. And we were all sitting there like, uh, okay. Starbucks a dude? What? Yeah. See, I've actually seen the original and not the remake, so I'm like, Starbucks a chick? What? <laughs> See, yeah, and, um... You haven't seen Battlestar? I was scarred by the original, so no, I haven't. Uh, and and that, and I, I know it's it kind so. of a time suck. Much. It's like, I'll turn it on on Netflix, and three days later, I'll realize that I haven't moved from the couch. <laughs> oh, wait, there's and that. And pretty soon, you won't say fuck anymore, you'll say yeah. frack. Yes. Yeah, I, in my household, me and my dad, for a good three years, anytime anyone swore, you hear, frack me. <laughs> um, no, there's that Portlandia skit, right, where these two people go, oh, they, uh... They start watching Battlestar Galactica. He goes, oh, yeah, my friend said it was good. We'll just watch it for a couple episodes. And it gets to the point where they, they just get one more episode. So they lose. So the people lose their job. They stop paying their bills. They lose <laughs> their house. They finish the series. And they go on to uh, get somebody to, you know, they find the guy who wrote it and have him write more episodes. Well, they don't actually find the real guy. They're just the guy has the same name. <laughs> and, and he's down for it. He's like, yeah, I'm going to write Battlestar Galactica. And you're like, that's not Ronald. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I, that's... I've seen a couple. I, I just haven't seen it uh, chron in chronological order or anything like that. No, and I, I think they did a lot of a good rewrote. I guess the story, right? Yeah, and yeah. It really was pretty much uh, totally like they, like I said, they took the name Cylon and took the characters' names. They're like, okay, f the rest of this. Sure. And did it, but I think it says a lot to Ronald Moore who did it. He he was responsible for. Next Generation, Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, really? Yeah, he was. He worked with Roddenberry, and when Roddenberry passed away, that was when Next Generation got really freaking good because <laughs> they didn't have to. They, they didn't have to because Gene Roddenberry was known. There was a certain set of rules you had to follow yeah. in a Star Trek storyline. Like you couldn't do like the hero couldn't do this, the hero couldn't do that. You couldn't have relationships with people on the ship, right? Exactly. And so once Roddenberry died, Ronald Moore came in and was like, "Well, those two are going to get together," and you know, and just really breathe new life into that series because mm -hmm. it. Like, kind of midstream in that series, it kind of just kind of fizzled out, and it was just kind of getting campy, and you were just like, okay. But then he picked it back up, and it, like, it really ended on a really good high note. And, and he went Next on to do Deep Space Nine. And Deep Space Nine, which, Space Nine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. which is, my which is favorite. many yep. people's favorite Star yeah. Wars, which really yeah. was, was our Star, like, Star, Star Trek. Sorry. Which is, <laughs> many people's favorite Star Trek. <laughs> And uh, oh, it's, it's a really divisive series, too, because a lot of people say, like, yeah, that's the best or that's the beginning of the end. Well, it's interesting, too, because it, it has this tree that's gone off and all the people like Ira and the uh, some, mm -hmm. I forgot who did Andromeda. I mean, there's just so many different sci-fi yeah. theories that right. have the original people from Deep Space really, that are good. It was, a, it was a huge springboard for a lot of careers. And when it first Agreed. came out, I wasn't the biggest fan of it. But then, like, I yeah. revisited it. I was like, wow, this actually is yeah. really freaking that good. That was how I felt. Yeah. We watched One of my all-time favorite characters. Yes. Oh, Garrett. yeah, Garrett. It's It's really Dwayne. good. You know, the only, the only thing that I ever had a problem with with that one is that it always felt like Star Trek was always about 
exploration, boldly going, this and that, mm-hmm. and for it to take place on a space station that was stationary, it's kind of like... Soap opera Yeah, it's, it, it got real political, it got real, uh, you know, he said, she said sort of stuff, and, and not that that isn't interesting, it's, and it's not that it wasn't one of my most favorite, beloved childhood, you know, mm-hmm. you know television shows, but... As far as you know, where where my mind goes when I'm imagining what a Star Trek experience is going to be like, I like to think about something that they're going places, they're meeting aliens, they're going on planets, and blah, 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 you know, or you know, I know that I don't think Roddenberry had Rodder, yeah, he didn't have anything to do with uh, Voyager. No, no, that, he was dead by but, then. But but like, I don't even. I don't even know because I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know how I would feel about it now, but I liked the idea of Voyager a lot because yeah. it's like, bang, you get dumped out in the middle of fucking nowhere, yeah. and all of a sudden it's just brand new open material. It's like you can make up things, you can run against stuff, you can you can meet planets and create you know stuff that's totally outside of what the, the Star Trek universe had set up already. It's kind of like what they've done with kind of the deviating timeline mm-hmm. now. It, there's just all this freedom, and I love that part. Well. It's kind of like what Kirkman said, um, Robert Kirkman Kirkman from Walking Walking Dead, Dead, you know, when a lot of zombie movies end, that's where he wants to see, that's where he wants it to begin. Yeah. And so if you think about it in that sort of thing, it's like Picard rocks up, saves a planet, and it's like, peace, we're out. And then they have to deal with basically the restructuring of the government Mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I love Deep Space Nine, though, totally. Yeah. So... Brian. So um, I'm going to try and throw a few that I that haven't been said. Comics, I'm going to say X-Men First Class. Yeah, that's the good one. Especially given the amount of time and budget that they had that to kind awesome. of make that ridiculous. And then this is pretty interesting because I was looking through the movies that I actually own for reboots. And the fact that I really don't like this genre speaks a lot to about these movies. 310 to Yuma and True Grit. The Westerns. Uh, yeah. yeah. Both of them are excellent. Yes, and like I said, I am not a Western guy, so no, the I'm... fact that I would say that those are some of my favorite remakes. I've never seen the original 310 to Human, but I have seen the original True Grit. My dad's a big John Wayne guy, so... Mm-hmm. Well, for me, you know, in an effort to not get stuck in the comic book reboot, because that seems to be, like, one of the most popular places for reboots, mm-hmm. you know, obviously... Uh, you know, I love all of the things we talked about, but one reboot that kind of came out of left field over the past couple of years that, that just knocked me out of my seat and I thought was awesome was Fright Night. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh. I grew up, I mean, I, I love like the old cheesy 80s horror movies. Love them so much. You know, as soon as October hits, I become this cheesy horror movie machine. And I, I basically exhaust all of the crappy horror films that they have on Netflix. That, that whole, you know, like, suggestions for, oh, we've got these horror movies, you know, <laughs> Halloween stuff. I, I eat those things up. I've seen all the Howl movies I've seen. It's bad. Like, it's bad. I've seen <laughs> all, all the Ginger Snap flicks. All yeah. the really terrible horror movies. I love that stuff. You and my friend David got to get together and watch them because he's that guy, too. I, but I love the old ones because of the, the camp factor and all that sort of stuff. But, but Fright Night's a very much a favorite of mine. It's mm-hmm. just so good. Mm-hmm. And the new one did it such great justice. It was. It, it felt like they told basically the exact same story, but it was. It felt fresh and updated and not forced. Right. And the actors were amazing. Colin Farrell was excellent yeah. as the vampire. Awesome. There are times that I need to be reminded that Colin Farrell is actually an amazing actor. Oh yeah. yeah. And the funny thing is, is that he was 
like the character felt like the same guy yeah. as he did in the 80s film. Because he was sort of this cool, suave, tall, dark, mm-hmm. and handsome sort of dude and totally flirtatious with people and, you know, very, very socially apt and just just awesome, you know. And, and everybody, he has everybody under this sort of, like, I'm a cool guy spell. Yeah. And, you know, and then, but yeah. behind closed doors, he's this horrible monster. So, I don't know, I just really loved that old movie. And then this came out and I thought... Oh no, here we go. Rebooting another or just remaking another great old movie. Now they're going to ruin it. And we went to the theater and I had very low expectations and I was blown away. At it. Yeah. I actually went to the panel for that at Comic Con. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, how cool. How was it? It was it was really fun. Like they showed quite a bit, but like all the actors that were on it, especially Colin Farrell is a huge fan of the original. Yeah, nice. And, it shows. And he was like, he said when he was approached, he didn't want to do it at first because he's like, I no, I I don't want to do this. I don't want to ruin something that I love. And But then he was like, you know what, I, if I'm going to do it, I have to really give like 110% to it. And I feel that that really should. And even my favorite out of that reboot was that David Tennant as the Vincent. Oh, yes. so I mean, he was so good because I remember when we saw it, like my friend kind of sat up and they're like, Doctor Who fans in the house? And like literally the whole theater was like raising their hand. <laughs> but it was just, to me, it was it was a really good panel and everyone just seemed to be really passionate about it. And it, I think it really showed in the end result of that. Absolutely. Movie. Well, after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about our least favorite reboots. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. Omega's podcast. Next, we'll be talking about our least favorite remakes. Brian, what's yours? I'm gonna go with the. Hmm, oh, it's debatable between Punisher Warzone and Clash <laughs> of the Titans. Oh, Wrath yeah. of the Titans is worse. Is it really? Yeah, it's, dude. Yeah, it's like I hear things about Punisher Warzone. It's like, dude takes out a cup, uh, not Capoeira, a what's that? Um, Parkour guy with a yeah. rocket launcher. That's <laughs> the best scene in the whole movie. I stood up on the theater. I was like, yes! Pretty much, that's, that's what I think sold everybody. It's like, hey, look, just look at this one frame. Takes out parkour guy with a rocket launcher. Okay, where do I sign? That, that, movie, that movie felt like you expected a Punisher movie to be. You know, it, it, it did the... So it didn't translate real well of a comic book. You know what I mean? Like Because no. they went... 
too literal with the translation, and so it comes across as too damn wacky because comic books can get away with being wacky yeah. a little bit. Punching and, like, through a guy's skull. Right, or, jigs- or like just the way Jigsaw was. It was just yeah. a little yeah. too silly, but it was still really entertaining. I couldn't stand it, frankly. Really? Oh, oh man, I, hated I thought it. it was hilarious. I hated it. <laughs> and then, yeah... Do I really even need to talk about Clash of the Titans? No, really? No, we're done. Yeah, enough said. Wow. No love for that movie. Okay, let's pass it to the right. JP. Oh, I just lost it. Well, actually, I got one. Um, Perfect. Pinku! Okay, so so you mentioned how X-Men First Class was one of your favorite reboots. X-Men First Class is my most hated reboot ever. I'm so sorry. That's quite all right. Wow, really? Well, okay, from ages 9 to 15, X-Men comics were my universe, Mm. right? They, you know, like, the world didn't revolve around the sun. They revolved around Professor Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. When I went in to watch First Class, I was pretty enthusiastic. Oh, cool origin story. Young Xavier. Young Xavier's, you know, not something you get to see a ton of in the comics. So I went, hey, that'll be really cool. What I got instead was uh, this... Pretty much Xavier being cool, but with no no build up to it, no justification as to why the character just had all this cred as an adult Xavier has, and that was one of the major underlying things that bothered me about the movie. And the other thing was, who the hell are all these new jerks who are kind of like fledgling X Men when you have thirty years of history and you can pick from any number of people? What the hell is going on with Emma and Xavier? Why even bother with that? And Oh, look, there's a, um... A... Moira McTaggart is an American. Oh, right, <laughs> uh... right. Oh, I wasn't even going to talk about that. And then there's the <laughs> chick it. from Mad Men cosplaying as Emma. Yeah. So that that's what that movie was to me. It, it did have its flaws, like, you know, why bother with the character Havoc if you're not going to throw Cyclops in? Right? Yeah. Right? And Cyclops was the first class, not Havoc. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the... Scott was older, and granted, you can change details in a movie. You can change... I, it's my feeling that you can change whatever you really want in yeah. in a movie as long as you have a good well. reason and do it well. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my I have one simple rule for any of these reboots, and and that's make it good. Just make it good. And they didn't do that. They sort of These changes were arbitrary, so it was like a big middle finger to me. Meanwhile, everybody around me who wasn't really into X-Men was like, wow, that... That movie was awesome. And, and I, just, I think that's what it is. It's yeah. like because it was a good movie, but it didn't stay in line with the X Men. Yeah. Well, that's it was like, like I didn't even see it as a good movie, so I, I'm honestly just confused. I'm, I'm right. sitting there going, "Why? Why? What's great about it? What the submarine? What can't you teleport? But I don't. What Hellfire Club? Cool. No, never mind. Screw your Hellfire I, Club. I think this reminds me kind of of a conversation that we had about another movie that the director made, which was Stardust. You had a friend who absolutely hated that film because she read the original novel long before the movie came out. Quite the, different. Quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's no Captain Shakespeare. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when she saw the movie, she's like, what the f- is this? Um, <laughs> same way that I was with the born identity. Ah. Yeah. So I can kind of see that sort of point for you. And for me, who, you know, my experience with X-Men is pretty much the cartoons. <laughs> I'm okay with seeing some changes, you and know? you know what? Those 90s cartoons are, you know, pretty good, actually, about yes. X-Men canon. It's true. As goofy as they are. Yeah. Those were great. I love those oh, whole They're things. so funny to watch. <laughs> On Netflix Instant. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway. Winchester, what you got? 
Um, my least favorite reboot is, I would have to say, Superman Returns. Oh, yes. <laughs> the creepy Stalker Superman. Creepy Stalker <laughs> Superman with just, I, I don't know. I, I feel, regardless of who actually plays Superman, I have sort of this love-hate relationship with Superman to begin with. Sure. Like, I love yeah. the original, the first two Christopher Reeve films. <laughs> Let's right, just say right. after three, you no. Know, um, way too comedic. Exactly. And like, and I would have to say, I was excited to see a new Superman. I was like, okay, you know, this will be cool, you know, whatever. But it just, it was so awful. His suit was horrific. I, I really hate the fact that the movie audiences, for some reason, only think that his only villain is Lex Luthor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am so tired of seeing Lex Luthor, which is why I'm kind of excited for Man of Steel, because it's Zod instead really? of Luthor. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, but it just, it was so bad on so many levels, and it was so long, and I just, I wanted to either go to bed or drink Yeah, afterwards. it was long, <laughs> it was dull, you know. Everybody's like, dude, but... Superman gets shot in the eye with a bullet and, and it, it just kind of just kind of smushes itself. It's like, yeah, you can see that in the trailer. So why watch oh, the why rest watch of this stink fest? <laughs> you know, the most virtuous character I thought in that movie was um, Cyclops, or I forgot the guy's name, but the guy who plays Cyclops in X-Men, who's a oh, boyfriend. Yes. He's like this total nice guy just taking care of her and knowing that she that, you know, she's just a baby mama to Kal-El over here. <laughs> Actually, no, that's the creepy part, because <laughs> the whole thing is that it's the kid from when they made Love in 2, but she has her memory wiped, so it's almost like he date-raped her. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, I never really thought of it that way, but well, you're right. It, it's, like, it's like the director or something was like looking at pages on superdickery.com, and if you don't know what superdickery.com is, it's pretty much all of this evidence from the original comics that Superman is just a dick. Yes. <laughs> there's yes. so many covers of him just like beating up Jimmy. Like there's one where he's Jimmy's adopted dad and he's like, you don't get any dinner. <laughs> You're a terrible son. No Christmas for you. Take, yeah. I'm taking your coat too. And that's kind of what I felt like was the, was the sentiment behind that movie. So I get yeah, what you're saying. It was pretty much, um, Brian Singer's love letter to the first two Supermans, and he didn't really do it very much justice. It was too much of a rom romantic film. Like, when I see Superman, I want to see him beat the crap out of someone. I want to yes. see him, you know, punch someone and launch him into the sun. You know, just, you know, yeah, that's I, what I, I like I about Superman. I don't want Superman. Superman's big villain to be an island made of, as uh, Kevin uh, Spacey put it, kryptonite. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Spacey was awesome in that film. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, you know, Kevin Spacey, what, like, they had good actors in it. It's just yeah. the script was horrible. Brian Singer should be shot. I just... And now he's back in charge of X Men again. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, he's doing <gasps> Days of Future Past. <gasps> That's why I'm so mad. Because <laughs> <laughs> that Days of Future Past to an X Men fan is like, is, don't touch it. Don't touch it. No, yeah. don't. It's. Don't. That's my baby. I apologize. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry in, in I'm, advance. I'm going to cry. Like, I feel bad for Brandon Routh because, you know, he's a good actor. He, he, was, good. He, was, yeah. he was a good Superman. He fit the role. I mean, he really, for lack of a better phrasing, filled out the tights. Yeah. Like, he really <laughs> embodied Superman. Yeah. But it was just such an awful script that yeah, you're just exactly. like. He got the screw job in that. Yeah, And absolutely. he's pretty much known as the bad Superman. Yeah. You know? And through no fault of his own, but well, I like the 
he fills the tights because that just brings me to the Man of Steel reboot. <laughs> How they selected Henry Cavill was, you know, they got through all the auditioning as far as the lines, and then it's like, okay, you need to try the tights test. <laughs> so if you can put on the suit and we don't just instantly start giggling, you know, then you've got the role. Wow. Well, and I wow. think it's funny too with Henry Cavill um, giving the Superman role is he's literally tried out for every superhero film in the past 10 years. <laughs> And came up number two. Oh my god! And so now that he's came out and is now Superman, I just feel like he's going to be going around the premieres flipping off everyone. Going, oh, guess what? <laughs> you don't want me to be Batman? Okay, I'll be Superman. Well, that's Sorry. like the gold standard of superheroes, I suppose. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I'll take the top dog, sure. <laughs> and get cursed by it. Well, right. There's some big boots to fill, I guess. I don't know. JP, you got something, yeah, or are you still trying to remember? I, I had, I had one. I just lost okay. up a list. Neuro. <laughs> Come back to me. All right. So uh, I haven't seen either of these remakes, but uh, I've heard so much about them that I know to stay away. Uh, Godzilla, the 1999 oh, remake. God. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna get oh. sick. So many. I, I like Godzilla, and I've got my friends that are really bigger Godzilla fans than I am, and, and they just came out of the theater with like tears in their eyes, and like, how could they do this? I have to say, though, they're coming out with a new one, and I went to the panel for it, and the test footage they had for it, holy crap, I'm so excited. Wow. Yeah. Because someone's going to do it right eventually. Yeah. It's such an iconic piece of culture. Well, and the guy that did it, it's it's actually, it's his first film, like, Hmm. and the crowd response, like, the director was, like, in tears, like, he didn't know what to do with himself, because everyone was freaking out, because they brought it back to the original, like, 1940s looking Godzilla and like when you saw man in the suit <laughs> right like they didn't show the actual monster because obviously it's too soon to be showing it but right. like you see like his silhouette coming up in the the smoke and everything and everyone just went <laughs> total ape shit about it but anyway and I remember with the 99 movie there was the big thing of like redesigning the Godzilla but it's gonna be cool but you're not gonna know what it looks like until you go into the theaters And then, like, the day of, Pepsi just put out, like, all these posters and stuff and promotional material that had the Godzilla on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Way to go. And it's like, so it's basically a T-Rex with some, like, Stegosaurus things on its back? (laughs) Is is that the one where where it had babies, too? Yes. Yes, it had babies. Okay. Which spawned a 90s cartoon series. What? Seriously? I remember that, yeah. Yes, Godzilla and the kids and helping in the... Bunch of kids doing stuff. Man, so see, like the dinosaur TV series from the late early nineties. <laughs> <90s. laughs> oh, is that the Godzilla? Uh, no, no, it's not quite. Way different. It's uh, just barely enough rememberable that I remember it and can't tell you a plot of a wow. single episode. I can't imagine the tears those fans must have been in. <laughs> Why would you do that to the people who carried your franchise? The same people who decided to make a Mr. T Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> Wasn't he down with that, though? He was on the show. That's true. And he had the album at that time, Be Somebody or Be Somebody's Fool. Uh, <laughs> eat your veggies. Yes. <laughs> so, and then the other uh, uh, worst remake is Planet of the Apes, the remake of Planet of the Apes, where Heston's mm-hmm. original is just so much better than the new remake. Wh- which one, the Tim Burton one or the Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the newest one? Not the newest one. Uh, the, Tim Tim Burton. the Tim Burton one, yeah. where they go to a whole new planet. I gotta Make say, out with the, the monkey. Yeah, Tim Roth was amazing in that. Oh, he was good, though. And I was okay with the flick until the ending, where it's just like, 
Huh? <laughs> and I won't spoil the ending for those who actually care to see what the hell I'm talking about. Just, it's one of those lol what? And I wasted a lot of time for this? Okay. Crap. <laughs> yeah, it was really disappointing. Yeah. Well, I'm having a hard time remembering what mine was, but I just found another one that I feel strongly about. Okay. Let's hear it. Rollerball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I loved the original Rollerball. The original Rollerball was so awesome. It had so much to say about, so much to say about a dystopian future, about politics, about society. It, it was a, it was like a powerful commentary on things, as well as interesting and action and all that sort of stuff. And, and the reboot that they did was just, like an extreme sports television show you know i mean there was an element of them being kind of roped in and not being able to escape sure but it it, it wasn't it wasn't the dystopian future that i mm-hmm. had come to love and expect and it was just really disappointing had there never been an original one i probably would have just enjoyed the other one as just a throwaway action mindless movie but the original one I have, like, special memories of. It was one of the first sort of adult-type movies that my dad showed me that he liked growing up. and Well, not growing up, but, you know, he watched and thought I would really enjoy. And I just, I love dystopian future stuff. It's totally fascinating. I love future kind of whatever. But mm-hmm. dystopian future stuff is really fascinating to me, and I like, I like that quite a bit. And I really enjoyed the original Rollerball quite a bit. See, saw it over and over again. And, you know, it's just, it's really jarring. And it's just another one of those situations where they deviated so much from the original stuff, where they basically took a vague idea of the original work and then spun it into this new thing. And it's just, it's just, it's kind of like what you imagine will happen to your comic when Hollywood gets a hold of it, if Hollywood ever gets a hold of it. They're just like, well, we like your idea, but we're going to change everything but one thing, you know? It's like, that's kind of what it felt like. It was just, yeah. it was it totally had nothing, it wasn't, Just ah. make a new franchise, for God's Yeah, sake. seriously, come on now. It's not like Rollerball was, uh, you know, ingrained into the, th- or, you know, woven tightly into the thread of our culture or anything like Absolutely. that, comparatively. Yeah, it's really, really disappointing, because it was, it was a very well-received sort of seminal movie long ago, and then that, this next one was just kind of a throwaway action title. It was just garbage. Hot, steamy garbage. Well, it's just really interesting how uh, in Balthazar Galactica, they, it's sort of like they knew what to throw away, which was most of it. <laughs> <laughs> and yet in Rollerball, they didn't realize that you can't do that. No, it's so good. So good. Well, in this conversation about reboots, we've already touched uh, quite a bit on the elements of making a good reboot. And you know when it is okay and when it isn't okay. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. What when when do we feel like it it is okay to do a reboot? And if you're going to do a reboot, what do you need to do in respect to creating the new movie comparatively to the original source material or the original film or whatever to make it good? What do you guys feel like is like when is it okay and what makes a reboot work for the studio? I'm gonna say. It's good to reboot something when they're about to lose the franchise rights. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the Spider-Man and X-Men movies constantly in development. Yeah. Shit. Oh, is that what happened? Mm-hmm. Really? If they don't have them in development, they will lose the rights. Son of a... And I think we've said before, too, that, um, you know, as long as you have justification for making changes, you can make changes. Mm-hmm. But you can't just do it on the whim. It needs to be clear and needs to be important why you made that change. Every time we talk about movie remakes or just movies in general and we, we come across something that's just like, why did they do that? I think about A Night with Kevin Smith. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he tells the story of, of being involved in writing a script for Superman. a Superman movie. Uh-huh. And he's taught, and I can't remember the producer that he was dealing with, 
But there was this producer, and he goes over to this guy's house, and it's like, he described, it's hilarious. He describes it, it was like Wayne Manor's, this crazy mansion. <laughs> and, you know, he gets let in by this butler dude, and they sit down in the guy's, like, living room area. And, and they're sitting down, and they're, like, you know, having wine or something, or talking. And, and he's like, so here's what I see. And he, like, lays back, and he puts his hand up, and, you know, <laughs> he's doing, doing this, like, framing thing, you know. He's like, okay, I see, I really, I don't want him to be having... Uh, the suit. I want him to have just, just like clothes, you know, or, or, or no cape or something that was like a huge part of the, you yeah, know, right. basically yeah. I really wanted to change the outfit. He's dramatic. pretty much out. like the two things that he wanted, or three things that he wanted. No suit, yeah, because it's faggy. No flying, because that's horseshit. And a giant spider in the third act. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, say what? And so, but the, the, the final thought on that thing, on that whole story, Kevin, he's talking about it and he's like, so then I go see that movie Wild Wild West. And in the beginning, it has the the producer's name that he was working with, and sure enough, there's a giant spider in the third act. Damn it! By the way, that guy was in charge of the Batman franchises from like the Tim Burton era, and also did the Superman Returns one as well. Oh, it's just all his fault. Pretty much. It's just poison. What's his name? Do you remember? It's John something or other. I can't. Re- you know what? I had it earlier in the podcast that I had the name. And now it's uh-huh. out of my mind. Well, anyway, that but yeah, YouTube uh, Kevin Smith talks Superman. Trust me, if you haven't seen it, it's one of the best comedy bits out there. It is. It's so great. <laughs> well, just just watch Kevin Smith's A Night with Kevin Smith. It tells you a lot of ha- what happens in or an Hollywood evening though. with Kevin Smith. Yeah, and it, then, it really and breaks down how hard it Yeah. There's, there's, there's multiple ones now, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's almost told in the style of, like, Charlie Murphy stories where he's meeting <laughs> Prince or meeting Rick James, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's so funny. So what do you guys think? Like, just open it up. What, what, what do you feel like makes it okay for there to be a reboot? Well, comic book-wise, like, the two movies that I keep thinking of that I would actually really like to see them redo it just because the first two were... Awful, um, and that would be the Fantastic Four films. Oh mm. yes, yes. Um, I think, I think, in some aspects, when it's okay to reboot is when, like, the first films were not, at you know, I can't even say quality in the same sentence as the Fantastic Four films, but <laughs> we won't go there. That would be another <laughs> podcast. But um, I feel like, because especially with how Marvel is really trying to tie their whole cinematic universe together and try Which is how it works in the comic books. There's crossovers right. like coming out of your ass. Exactly. I mean every, and, it's so incestuous, so why not with the movies? Yeah, and to have you know, you have these stellar films like The Avengers and Thor and Iron Man. And even though unfortunately Fantastic Four is owned by Fox and will never be in the Marvel universe, though I have read that Marvel is trying to regain the rights to Spider-Man, X-Men, um, Fantastic Four, so they could actually have a real full Avengers film eventually. You know, I would be so yeah. sick, be right? Great. Well, speaking of, like, X-Men First Class, one of the things that they were tr- wanting to do... Uh, well, no, sorry, I take that back. It wasn't First Class, it was X-Men Origins Wolverine. Right. They were wanting... Also balls. <laughs> Don't get me started on the new one. There. The new one's intriguing looking. I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in My the new one. in Japan, I know that arc. <laughs> it, um, <laughs> Don't screw it up. Because the, they originally wanted to, in Origins, have Wolverine with Captain America on D-Day, which happens in the comics. Yeah. But because... Wolverine is owned by Fox and Captain America is owned by Disney. 
they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. They they want to get along. <laughs> and so I think for me, remakes are okay when, you know, you're trying to bring up the quality of your product mm -hmm. and to give the fans an actual honest to good story that, you know, they, that they deserve. Right. So in the original remake doesn't do the original stuff, the yeah, original just, material justice, justice. And then it's time to go again. It's like how they had that weird angly Hulk and then they had the less worse Hulk afterwards. Right. I actually really enjoyed that second Hulk. But then yeah, again, I thought it was pretty good. You know. But then Mark Ruffalo showed up and was like, hey, I'm... What's up? I'm better than this. Exactly. Nobody complained. <laughs> Man, I think awesome. when it's okay is enough time has gone past where, like, a movie that had... The concept was just a great concept and had great potential, but whoever, for whatever reason, the producer, the director, the writer, they just dropped the ball. Um, something like, well... Uh, Van Helsing, uh, which I once did a review on, which I feel is a wasted piece of potential and of just oh, yeah. a steaming hot pile of garbage of a movie. And there was a lot of things that were going to be tied in. They were, they were planning to do a whole franchise with a bunch of different movies. There was actually a TV series that was greenlit about the Frankenstein monster from that movie. It was greenlit by Fox, by the way. Oh, so so oh, yeah. we would have gotten three episodes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Out of order before it got canceled. So they're redoing that again with Tom Cruise. I'll be interested to see how that goes. <laughs> well, like I said, it's Tom Cruise is he's Tom Cruise, you know, love him, hate him, whatever. You know, he's he is who he is, and fine, you make him an Ethan Hunt type of character with queer gadgets fighting monsters and you know, the eighteen hundreds. Sold. Yeah. I think another time it's okay to make a film is when you want to bring something to the current generation. Because there's a lot of films in my youth that all these kids these days haven't seen. Like one of my favorites is Explorers, where mm. these kids talk to aliens and they develop this computer technology that does this like physical bubble and they use it to come up with the idea of turning it into a spaceship and they explore the galaxy. It's just really weird, wacky film, but. It, it, I don't know. It's one of the things that made me fall in love with technology. Sure. And I'd love to bring that to the next generation. And there's a couple other films like Short Circuit I thought was great. They're actually oh making God. remaking Short Circuit, nice. I think, uh -oh. 2014. And another one I was going to bring up, War Games, is another one they're remaking. They're remaking. There's a lot of little... Such a good movie. Flight of the Navigator we were yes. talking about yeah. earlier. They're remaking that yeah, one. Yeah, Short Circuit was the other yeah. movie that like really got me into sci-fi back in the day. But I'm... Now curious if they're going to essentially blackface another person where you have a white actor where they painted the skin to make him look like an Indian person. <laughs> I forgot. You, you think that doesn't exist, right? But then there's a little ranger. Right. Oh, yeah. Then there's a little ranger, right? Just because Johnny Depp can get away with so. anything. So yeah, nice. pretty much. Well, he's got his face painted like pure white, so See, whatever. I, I feel like a t one of the times, one of the few times where it's okay to do a remake is when the technology has changed so much that they have something new to say. Yeah. Basically, or or really in general, take that technology out when they have something new to say. When when film as a medium or technology or whatever has has grown a certain amount, where they can bring something to the story to more fully realize the material than they ever could before. Mm -hmm. That actually reminds me. I know it's not it's not a movie, but it's an anime. The, the Evangelion remakes. Um, if you've watched the original versus the the new first, you know, the new episodes, and they have you know certain features like. Uh, like the uh, the green parts of the Ava Unit One, it's a purple and green mech. If you don't know what Evangelion is, it, 
And if you don't know what Evangelion is, wow. Just just Google it, all right? But the yeah. green parts of the mech were supposed to be glowing, but, you know, back when they were making it, you can't do that with cell paint. Nice, now you yeah. can do it with CG. There's a lot of stuff like that in the in the new Evangelion rebuild. Oh, yeah, or you showed us the and most recent OAV of the Rambo and Half stuff, and it's oh, yeah. so pretty. And, it's, and you can tell it's cheaply animated, but they just do it so well anyway, sure. right? Yeah. I really do feel like, you know, even if it's not necessarily technology, although technology does play a, a heavy role, especially with sort of some of the 80s films, because in the 80s and early, and early 90s, it feels like they, it was like the golden age of like weird creative sci-fi movies, mm-hmm. it seems. And so there was so much cool stuff, but going back, they're so cheesy with special effects and, and makeup and mm-hmm. stuff. And it's like, I would love to see them really do The Last Starfighter right again. You know, like it was a great movie originally, they, they, but I would love to see them. They've actually talked about making a sequel to it. Okay, see, so, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I really yeah. feel like there's a lot of films that... You really have to be willing to just kind of go, all right, we're just going to suspend my disbelief, and even though it looks really fake, we're just going to still enjoy it. I would love to be able to see that and not have to pretend anymore. You know, to go back and have a movie, like you were saying, Explorers, and and you watch it now, it's probably like, wow, man, I can see the strings, you know? (laughs) It's kind of amazing to be able to have the technology we have now, and it'd be great for them to shed some some of that goodness onto some classic stuff, you know? And I think technology is a double-edged sword, too, because... uh, like, the first Lord of the Rings to me, I thought the CG in that was horrible. I would have rather them go back to the, like, original model-making stuff. And some filmmakers have done that. Like, if you've seen Moon, he was so inspired by the mm-hmm. 1970s sci-fi stuff in the miniatures because it That's looks... And you can get movie. such good detail and stuff. Moon is one of the finest science fiction movies I've ever seen in my entire yeah. life. And Sam Rockwell deserves to be in the Hall of Fame of Actors yeah. forever. He's such a... Oh my god, that's such a good movie. If you haven't seen Moon with Sam Rockwell, it, it is like one of the most excellent sci-fi like psychological thrillers ever. Mm-hmm. And so, not only technology, but also leaving technology, I think, can bring something new as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You, there is always that concern where you get one of those directors where it's like, plot? Characters? Feelings? Who cares? Look at all these special effects I can do with CGI. It's a simple principle. Just make it good. You know, and mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean new technology and a new story. Just yeah, new technology sometimes, like Nero was saying, can kind of hold you back. If you look at the Ghibli films, or Ghibli, I don't know how people want to say it. How, what, do you know what the... Ghibli. Ghibli? Yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah. so right, right, right. So the studio Ghibli films, they, you know, if you're not familiar with that, it would be, you know, Western audiences would be familiar with uh, Princess Mononoke or more famously uh, Spirited Away, Away, which I think won an Academy Cosmo. Award. Yeah, it was the first, yeah, it was the first thing to ever win the best animated feature and got a standing ovation when it did win. So those are some of the finest animated movies ever, let alone animated movies coming out of Japan. And... If you watch them, which you should, they start to head in a direction of being more and having more and more computers involved. And then when they got around to doing uh, Ponyo by the Sea, they decided to go back completely to the old-fashioned way and cut out computers from the equation almost entirely. And it has this... It it reclaims that incredible charm of the early Mm -hmm. movies. And it doesn't lose any of... It really doesn't lose anything, honestly. I feel like computers... Computers enable you to do a lot of cool stuff, but at a point, we rely on it, and it has... It's just too clean. And there's a charm to traditional cell animation that 
is lost in the in the mix. Well, you know? it's something visual too. There's sure. this thing called Uncanny Valley, mm. and it's a concept where the closer something gets to reality, you know, there's there's actually a dip in quality where it makes it creepy if it's close but not quite close enough. So you either have to distance it or make it completely mm-hmm. seamless. And just to add on to that, like recently the uh, Hobbit film, which uh, has high frame rate, right? You get it at what's it, sixty frames or forty eight frames in the twenty four. And because it's so close to real life, you know, your eye mm-hmm. only captures up to maybe 60 frames, so 48. By getting all those extra frames, it makes it feel, feel more real. And because of that, you're more sensitive to all the flaws in it. it and a lot of people described it. It felt like you're standing in the room with the actors and they were actually just acting and not really the characters. Where yeah, by it looks like dropping, behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. By, by dropping some detail, going back 24 frames per second, it feels like a movie. It, your brain interprets more and fills it in. And mm-hmm. Although I do feel like the CG was super reach out and touch it yeah. clarity, yeah. which was really cool. Like for the first time, it didn't feel like it was superimposed, but it really felt like it was there with the actors. Right. That was pretty cool. Was that in the standard frame rate or the high no, frame rate? No, in the high frame rate. Uh-huh. The high frame rate, there's just something about CG and high frame rate that really pops. Okay, yeah. I watched it in standard because I, I was hearing a lot about the motion sickness thing. and uh, Motion sickness? Huh? Yeah, people yeah. getting motion sickness, actually, from watching it in the high frame rate, and I figured I that. that would be me because I, I have the weakest stomach ever with that kind of stuff. Hmm. Well, I think with like um, with technology, I think if you can get a good like happy medium in between using like you know prosthetics and puppetry and all sure. that and computers, like a reboot that I'm actually really really excited for is the new Evil Dead coming out. Oh my gosh! Like I am, I'm because I'm I'm like you. I'm a huge '80s horror fan. And Evil Dead to me is like in my top ten favorite films of all time. Evil Dead was the first crazy ass eighties horror film I ever saw, and after yeah. then it was the, it was I was it was all over, man. Yeah, and you know because I was watching this behind the scenes thing on it, and they're really they really you know take the new technology, but it's still using like prosthetics on like the girl in the basement, you know. Slowly your soul, slowly your soul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's singing that creepy-ass little song and stuff. I, I think if you can reach a good, happy medium with it, it will work. And I, that's why I'm really excited for that. And, you know, they're not, you know, they're not compromising with the story. Like, they actually got an NC-17 rating. Oh, it originally. looks like it's going to be exceedingly scary. Yeah, and they had to cut, like, a good, like... 10 15 minutes out of I it. I wonder if to it's going to be funny. To I I hope it is though. That that I would be disappointed that's, if it wasn't. But that's the thing. Like if you watch the commercial, it does not look no, funny. It looks, it looks terrifying. Right? Have you seen the red band trailers at all? Yeah. Oh my god. Like I was I showed it to my 13-year-old uh, nephew cuz I'm a good I'm a good aunt like that. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Ooh. Wow, that's awful. And he's like looking at looking at looking at me. He's like who the hell Thanks this. And I'm like, I'm like, you want to see it though, don't you? He's like, well, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, the uh, one of the big things that made Evil Dead famous was it got a tagline from Stephen King where he said, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Yeah. So, you know, even though it was basically a glorified student film, you know, there was that tag, Stephen King, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. So it's it's the only film I've seen with tree rape. So (laughs) there's that. That, That's something to take away. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of Japanese movies that have that as well. I'm sure. (laughs) I wonder if they'll remake that part. It is in there. 
It is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's... no. In one of the red, in in one of the red band trailers, yeah. you see the girl. She's like all tied up, and you see this limb like going up her leg. I'm Ooh. like, God damn it! <laughs> wow. Yeah, that that part really disturbed me. That was really. That As was a wonderful. woman, does it hurt you? Oh, uh, you know what? <laughs> it's just hard to watch stuff like that. Do you remember the first Silent Hill movie? Nope. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at the I've very noticed. end, the chick who was like the 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 cult leader person. Yeah. She gets a, a bunch of like living barbed wire comes around, pulls her open, and then it goes woo. Right up her leg, and it's just like, oh wow, that's so awful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. No. I, I think I think that was a little forgivable a because here. it was it was almost like a slicer in half move, not really. Yes, exactly. Okay. It was a slicer in half move, but it was still kind of like uh, it would. Well, yeah, but it's but not the problem like, is the way that they filmed it. It was almost the same in the beginning. It's almost like. Do you think it's like an homage at all? I, I would say it probably maybe is. yeah because the way the way it shows it coming out the leg like it totally reminded me of Evil of Dead. Evil Dead yeah. But then it's like whoosh, cut in half. Yeah. <sighs> That's another good one, like, remake-wise. Like, the new remake for that was so nowhere near as good as the first movie, but it was so much more faithful. Yeah. So it's like, sometimes being faithful isn't the best thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was like a love letter to people who have played Silent Hill. Yeah. But the first movie, I think, was much more entertaining and scary and interesting and all that sort of stuff. Whew. Yeah, yeah, that was... Love that franchise. Yeah. Whew, buddy. Well, I remember, you know, when the crappy X-Men Last Stand came out, they had to do the whole Phoenix thing. <laughs> and, you know, I'll give them credit for this. It's like, okay, let's do the whole Phoenix thing where you have an alien entity come down and possess somebody while you're trying to do this whole battle in space. Yeah, that'll fit in real well with the previous two X-Men <laughs> movies. So the whole idea that, like, her brain was kind of, like, held in check by... Xavier and basically it's a latent power that you it was know, pretty tidy way to it, it was a smart mm-hmm. way of doing it instead yeah. of trying to make it a big space opera. Well, real quick, let's just gloss over one. It isn't okay. I, honestly, I feel like it's pretty. It's that's not real difficult. You know, there's lots of you know quantifiers and if then maybe for if it is okay. Mm-hmm. But when it isn't okay, I think it's relatively straightforward. Mm-hmm. And it's it's when there's nothing new to say. You yeah. know, when when you can't improve upon what was there. And it's just to make money again. It's like if you, you know, if you're not there to, if you're not bringing it out to reintroduce it to a new audience or update it with new technology and new techniques or repair a poor original film, why are you doing it? Probably just for money. Yeah. And in that case, it's really not okay. But it really hurts the franchise if you think about it, because then you have all the stigma of this crappy version of it. Is that really going to make money in the long run? I really don't think it will. Well, I said when it's okay, you know, for a studio, it's when you're about to lose the uh, franchise rights for a fan. Well, yeah, it's I mean, there's when there's... a studio just makes a movie just to hold on to the franchise rights. Right, exactly. I mean, there, there's stuff that's happening behind the scenes, like like what you just said, Brian. That you know, Roger Corman's stuff... Fantastic Four. Well, it's much <laughs> wide, but we don't think about that sort of stuff. You know. Yeah. Yes. If you have a hundred million dollars to make a film, are you going to make a comic book film that's been proven in print or something original that's been untested? It's it's there's all sorts of factors at play that influence the money making decisions and the marketing decisions. And uh, yeah. you know, like George Lucas when he did episodes one, two, and three, he added a bunch of materials in that made his fortune, which were the merchandising, right? A bunch just different things of merchandising. And episode one, it was so blatant and so. Like in your face, ridiculous, overt. But I think in episodes two and three, he didn't really take it back a notch. But the product was so much better; it was more forgiving for those. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember um, hearing in an interview or something where 
the first Schumacher movie, the producer that we're same guy, Batman that, right now, Batman, yes, the that same producer that we're talking about with Kevin Smith, he told Schumacher that he wants him to make a movie that's merchandise tastic. Um, wow. Oh, well, they certainly did that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I love the fact that George Clooney has apologized repeatedly for Batman. <laughs> he's like, that's because so, George Clooney is the greatest man on earth. He's like, I'm so glad Christian Bale showed up and saved Batman for everybody because I really. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. It's like Nintendo and the lost Mario games from, from the, <laughs> the CD system. With, was it Philips CD? Philips CD. Yeah. Their official stance is that they just don't exist. Like if you go to the Mario Wikipedia or, or anything official, it's just not there. That's so Japanese. Yeah, it's so Japanese. Yeah, so oh my good. Gosh. Well, anyway, I think that, that about wraps it up for today. Thanks again, Winchester, for coming and working with us on the movies. You always have lots of good, insightful things to share. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Geek Life. We always love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklife at pandamega.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor, visit our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and complete the form located there. Music has been provided by Airplus Recordings. As always, links to the artists and songs featured on this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like more information about Airplus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This has been episode 32, Movies. And for the rest of the Geek Life crew, this is the Brian saying we'll see you next time on episode 33, Video Games. See ya! Bye! Had there never been an original one? Oops. <laughs> <laughs>